Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 126, August 14th to August 20th, 1863. Last week, we talked about Lee's offer of resignation. As you can imagine, with the perception of Lee and his being necessary to victory for the South, his resignation was declined. We often talk about Civil War generals and how they should be replaced, but the follow-up question to that is who should replace them, and certainly in the case of Lee, there's nobody who's going to be quite to the same standard. We also covered the New York draft riots, which while to the extreme, does show that there is real discontent with the way the war is going. This week, I think we will be a little bit on the lighter side. I want to take the time to talk about the makeups of troops from the United States Colored Regiments, as well as the kinds of units serving in the conflict in Oklahoma. Before we do that, though, I want to talk a little more in-depth about the command structures of the Confederate Army. Of course, we do have Patreon content, and if that's something that interests you, we have some movie reviews here we've been talking about. We did Gettysburg last month here, July, August. We're doing Glory. Then next month, we're going to do Ride with the Devil, which will connect actually to an episode here we have coming up about the Lawrence, Kansas raid. So we'll talk about that for sure. And if that sounds like something that would interest you, there is a link to the Patreon in the show description. And of course, those proceeds do go toward the general upkeep of the show. They are greatly appreciated. So to start out this episode, I would like to take a look at Lee's command, which I began to a smaller degree of last episode. Essentially, we are going to have the same command structure for the remainder of the war, a three-core system. Now, this is important because Lee probably preferred a two-core system, as his officer cadre was stacked with capable individuals and his lieutenants worked well with his command style. Usually, you hear Jackson being the offensive force and Longstreet being the defensive powerhouse, but Longstreet too could be aggressive at times and lead successful attacks. We're going to see that here especially at Chickamauga, although his role in that battle is put under a little bit of a question mark. And then, of course, the wilderness. He has a Jackson-style attack that almost wins the day for the South, so we will talk certainly about both of those. Both could act independently, though, which was important, and I mean that in an inside-of-lease framework kind of way. For instance, would Jackson have realized the importance of Cemetery Hill at Gettysburg? I think so, and I think he would have made the decision to attempt to take it. He would not have been hung up on whether it was practicable. And likewise, Lee, probably using that verbiage, would have understood Jackson to know what he means when he says that too, so there's kind of the flip side of that. Would the war have ended and Gettysburg marked as the rendering of the country? I would not go that far, but Gettysburg would probably have been another one-day Confederate victory, and then maybe... Who knows, it would have led to more of a definitive showdown elsewhere, maybe the Pipe Creek line. But I don't think it's necessarily too far-fetched to say that if Cemetery Hill falls on the first day, then the Union Army is probably not going to stick around. They're not even going to be there for the days two and three. They don't have to, because they're going to have to move to a better defensive position, especially if Lee's going to be on the offensive. Here's the thing, though. Gettysburg is significant for many reasons but also because Lee is going to realize there are limitations to Yule and A.P. Hill. 
Oddly enough, with early, we're going to see two very capable subordinates in Gordon and early. Both of these will be granted more trust throughout the war, with Gordon throwing in his bid for the best non-professional officer of the conflict. So if, even if he's not quite to that level, then he's definitely going to be in the conversation. I would argue, and this is my own speculation, that Ewell and Hill are both kind of hampered by their previous commander in Jackson. Jackson never really explained things, if you recall, he just gave orders. Ewell would certainly have been better served if he knew what the big picture was. One Confederate officer who wrote of him while serving on the frontier that he learned how to command 60 dragoons and nothing else. He is never really going to get right from his amputated leg, and eventually will be removed due to his poor health and lack of effectiveness, as we will see in the Spotsylvania campaign. Hill will also be in poor health, but he's also going to be changed, I feel, by Corps Command. While an aggressive and capable division commander, he will fizzle out, maybe in the shadow of Jackson, trying to emulate Lee. Maybe he is really better in middle management, and we know other officers like that, just like John Bell Hood. Hood is an interesting case as well, being a self-promoter. He will eventually climb to Army Command in the West and fail at that gig pretty spectacularly. The difference with Hood, though, is that he still gets to be associated with one of the more effective brigades in the Army of Northern Virginia. When you think of the Texas Brigade, you probably think of Hood. You don't think of Robertson, Wofford, or John Gregg. Well, maybe you do if you're writing a Civil War podcast, perhaps. Maybe you think of those other guys. But obviously, maybe you first think of Hood before the rest of those guys. Ewell and A.P. Hill do not get that designation. It is going to be apparent to Lee that he does need guys like Ewell and Hill to command a corps. Richard Anderson will take over for Longstreet after he gets wounded at the Wilderness. Sure, but he's not going to sparkle. Early is going to have the second corps command, but eventually be stripped of it, so there are not going to be a whole lot of options. And we talked about that at the top of the episode. There's not really a whole lot of options to replace these officers. It's not like there's somebody in the wings who's ready to come in and change the course of the war. Lee will have to take a more hands-on approach with them, especially without Longstreet. Gone will be the days that he can turn to Jackson and Old Pete and just expect things to get done. This is also going to be a problem because we mentioned last episode, Lee's health is going to start to decline. He's already in a little bit of a poor health stretch here, and especially as we get into 1864, that's still going to be the case. And if he has to take more of an active part in command, he's going to exert himself more. That's going to be a problem as we're going to see, especially in the Overland campaign. We will continue to monitor and see how these things evolve moving forward, but I do just want to throw this out now about Yule and Hill. So I would like to maybe get a little bit more in-depth into the United States Colored Regiments and their makeup and potential training. We have already gone over several key engagements for the promotion of these regiments. Some 178,000 would eventually enlist. 99,000 of these would be from slaveholding states. I think maybe it would surprise you to know these enlistments came from a variety of different sources. We briefly mentioned when talking about Milliken's men, some of the recruiting runs were forcible. 
Some did not want to serve, and rightly so, because if you had someone telling you what you could or couldn't do the majority of your life, then the military is probably not the place you want to go. Some were free coming from northern states, hence the state designations from Massachusetts and Connecticut, which will continue even after many of the other regiments were incorporated into the United States Colored Troops numbers. For instance, if you remember, the 1st South Carolina was transferred to the 33rd USCT. The recruiting centers were not, unfortunately, in primary major cities. We talked about the New York draft riots, so you can take the experience from that and then easily see why this is probably A, not a good idea, and B, probably not going to receive a whole lot of support. There were a wide variety of backgrounds for the recruits. For instance, some of the northern regiments with the state designation would have a flock of the intellectual crop from the freemen of the north. Formerly enslaved would make up the regiments from the south. There was still a universal desire from those who did join willingly of obtaining liberty, seeing the joining of the army as a great undertaking. Many who enlisted in southern states would not have a last name. To get around this, many would adopt the names of generals like Grant. If they were unfit for service, it was possible to be placed into an invalid regiment. One of the things that the movie Glory, I think, nails is the fact that there was a big fanfare involved with receiving a regular army uniform. One of the things, though, I don't think they get exactly right, and talked about this in the movie review, is that severe punishments were often avoided, and they were to the discretion of the officers. There had been some motions to make the uniform different from blue, but this was scrubbed as by 1863, there were large amounts of uniforms available. One positive for the black regiments was that they were fairly well supplied in terms of arms and uniforms. The army, a well-oiled machine compared to, say, 1861. But getting the uniform was an important part of the journey for a recruit. While black soldiers could not be officers, they could be NCOs, who were picked because of their leadership skills, literacy, and intelligence. Many soldiers would learn to read and write while in the service. These same men were committed to learning to become good soldiers, which is often the misconception when it comes to these regiments. While scant on combat experience when compared to their white counterparts, they were able to see success, and were important to the Union war effort in guarding supply and communication lines. The irony was not lost on the black soldiers, who would be picketing in areas they used to be in forced servitude. We have already seen a couple of legit combat examples, such as Port Hudson, Honey Springs, and Fort Wagner. There will be more as we progress. We briefly mentioned the problem with pay, but just remember instead of $13, originally these regiments would receive $10 a month, the remainder of the pay going toward clothing. In 1864, equal pay would be passed by Congress, but just for freedmen. In 1865, it would be granted for formerly enslaved as well. Unfortunately, there would be no back pay, sometimes the enlistees and their families complaining. But I think the bottom line and the takeaway should be that these were effective soldiers who earned their due. I think, just as a quick note, we need to mention in relation to that is that, obviously, there were contemporary opinions that these regiments were not effective soldiers, and obviously there are racial undertones to that, and even there are some modern interpretations that a lot of these regiments were not particularly 
good units, whether it was because you were getting officers who were not necessarily as gung-ho to the cause, right? There were a lot of individuals who were NCOs who are attracted by the increased amount of pay. And so they're, maybe they're not in it for the right reasons. You certainly have a lot of legitimate abolitionist officers, Glory, Robert Gold Shaw, right? So again, that's why it's a little weird why he's, you know, rolling out some pretty harsh punishment here uh, in the movie. But we see that maybe they're not led effectively at times because of this. We see also that because they're not labeled as combat troops, they're not getting a whole lot of training. There are certainly a lot who are very committed to becoming good soldiers, as we mentioned. However, some regiments really don't see any kind of combat or really they're not expecting to be in combat. So they're not going to be as prepared to meet the enemy. And so we also have that kind of factoring as well. So that's where we get these kind of opinions from. But we do see those that do have the right amount of training or maybe they rise to the occasion. Even if they don't, we see that they do become effective combat soldiers. It may surprise you to know, just as a quick aside, that there were some fake regiments of the enslaved serving in the South. Something that is often overlooked is the support functions that blacks played in the armies of the Confederacy. Teamsters, servants, cooks, these were all crucial to the army and their effectiveness. Without them, it would be difficult, which would be another reason why emancipation was so important. They were certainly a framework on the home front that needed to be undermined, but also this direct jab at the armies of the Confederacy would be important. We may have mentioned, though, that toward the end of the war, the Confederacy faced a dearth of manpower and will turn to the creation of regiments of black troops as a possible solution. At that stage, Robert E. Lee would be a great supporter of this. Handing over freedom for their service would ensure their potential loyalty, because at the end of the day, having to relocate to the North rather than staying at home would maybe swing the decision. Nathan Bedford Forrest reportedly gives the same deal to formerly enslaved individuals who do actually serve under him during the war. You get freedom to the north or south of Victorious, so it's kind of a win-win. Earlier in the war, though, the Confederacy needed to make good on perceptions with foreign countries, whose aid was going to be vital to their success. They would create show regiments to use with foreign dignitaries, especially in, say, New Orleans. These regiments were not meant for combat, but if you recall, we mentioned way back that slavery is still seen as a negative institution, even in 1860. So much so that it's not even referred to by its name, only the peculiar institution. So we can see this would make sense in an effort not to look backward. We may touch this subject again as the curtain starts to close on the Confederacy. I want to briefly go over the types of arms and supplies that soldiers serving in the Indian Territory or Oklahoma used. When we left off in this area, the Battle of Honey Springs was fought. I already argue that while it is referred to as the Gettysburg of this theater of the war, it is more devastating than the actual Gettysburg to the Southern cause. Effectively, the Confederates would cease to exist as an offensive threat. They will rebound slightly, but they will not be able to reclaim the momentum. Momentum they could have had if they had won the battle. After the victory, if you recall, James Blunt would continue to destroy the caches of rebel supplies. This was not the first Union foray in a Confederate-controlled territory. Remember that the Confederacy had done some work in establishing treaties for serving in the Confederacy, or had established treaties to be neutral with various tribes. Albert Pike and Douglas Cooper were both involved in these, figures we have already spoke on. 
We mentioned in a previous episode that there were cultural ties with the southern states. Some of the inhabitants of the new Indian Territory have become fairly successful, living prosperous lives benefiting from the institution of slavery. There was also the threat that the Indian Territory would be settled by whites. Now, if you are the five civilized tribes, as they're called, then you could appreciate already having a distrust of the government, and more government interference would not be welcomed. Those who were still trusting were often turned off by the federal government, essentially cutting its losses in the region. Lack of supply would lead the Confederate war effort to peter out. Stan Wati is still going to operate, being the last Confederate general to surrender, but this is going to come mostly in the form of raiding. Much like World War I in Africa, there was a lot of trading sides when it came to the native population. We discussed one battle at Round Mountain, where it was possible a good portion of Cherokee switched to the Union side, so we should keep that in mind in this theater, as the situation is going to be a little more static. We're going to talk about the Homestead Act if we haven't already done so, and obviously that's going to be something that is not going to be looked on very positively by the civilized tribes, that just seems like another way in which the government is going to be able to take their land. And, you know, obviously it hasn't been too long ago. We talked about the Trail of Tears and how there was a forced relocation. That hasn't been too far removed in 1860. So if they did it before, then it's possible they can do it again. And obviously you can imagine there would be a lot of distrust if that was the case. For the Union, troops were armed mostly with regulation dress and arms there were regiments from Kansas and Wisconsin who will serve in the territory. It was written of the Indian Home Guard units that they were poorly supplied, and that it seemed that their uniforms did not fit them. Some would display attributes of native garb, including a cross pen that signified that they were loyal to the Union. Because of this, they were often referred to as Pen Indians. It is interesting that the troops could have been putting a kind of regional flair to their uniforms, especially when it came to the Indian Home Guard. Union regulation jackets, ill-fitting as they were in most cases, were decorated with pens and ostrich feathers, and it cuts more of an interesting picture that way, I think. Confederate forces were even worse off. They often survived and captured Union clothing. We will talk about the Second Battle of Cabin Creek and why capturing of supply wagons was important, and obviously the lack of supply coming in for the Confederacy is going to make it very much so. There are several accounts of the poor attire of the Confederate forces, especially amongst the native troops. The Confederate quartermasters were plainly insufficient, so the soldiers of the South would rely on what they could get from Mexico or on local seamsters. As a result, most were clothed in civilian attire. Some would border on the outlandish. And this is kind of like how we talked about with the irregulars and guerrillas in Missouri. That part of the conflict was definitely an individualized style of combat, right? We talked about how you're getting a shirt. It's probably representing your home. And it was probably made by some of your family members. And you're fighting a very singular style of combat where oftentimes you're armed with a lot of different weapons and kind of a one-man army, so to speak, against multiple attackers. And I think this is very similar, and obviously there is a guerrilla aspect of of the war in Oklahoma, so it's not too far-fetched to say it is a very similar 
style of combat, right? Obviously, we talked even about, when mentioning guerrilla warfare in general, how in America, the native tribes were really the forerunners of this style of war, this petite guerre, right? And so it's not entirely outside of the realm to say that, you know, obviously there is going to be some individualized aspects to their dress, and that makes sense, right? Native troops on both sides will wear traditional gear, some with turbans, leggings, and moccasins. Overall, in this region of the war, the soldiers were ill-supplied when it came to firearms. Indian Home Guard regiments actually carried converted weapons that fired a round ball. Some were armed with an inferior Austrian rifle. One only needs to read through some accounts and memoirs to realize this was not a preferred weapon in larger theaters. In particular, we do see a lot of the memoirs that mention the Austrian rifles that come in and how they're essentially useless. So, obviously, you see in the theaters of the war, there's a trickle-down effect. You have the East, you have the the Midwest, right? And then you have the West, the Trans-Mississippi, and then, obviously, you have even further afield in the Indian Territory. So, if your best stuff is going to the East, to kind of this middle area, Tennessee, right? And then the Trans-Mississippi, obviously, is important as well. And you're probably not getting the best stuff, so you're getting these Austrian rifles that these other units don't want to use. As you can imagine, the Confederate troops were not quite so lucky. Their forces had a wide variety of arms. Flintlocks are still in use throughout the war, which should tell you the kind of material disadvantage. Still, it is interesting, I've seen it pointed out that there was a minimal use of bows. I think it speaks to the fact that these tribes who mostly occupied Oklahoma were phasing that skill set out. In the more assimilator coming into a culture that doesn't use a bow as a weapon for hunting, for combat, then you're probably not going to be learning that from a young age. You know, that's one of the things that you especially see with some of these Plains tribes, the Sioux, you know, learn about Crazy Horse, Red Cloud, whoever, then they're not only learning to use a bow from a young age, they're also learning to use it in a pressure situation like on horseback where they're either hunting buffalo or they're in a war setting, right? So it is interesting to see as the culture kind of shifts and changes and you're assimilating more with the Southern way of life or what was considered to be civilized at the time, right? Then you're not learning to use a bow. So it's interesting to see how that kind of changes. With that, we can pause there for now. This week, we continue to talk about the problems in command Robert E. Lee will have. Attrition amongst his officer rank is going to be a real problem. Remember that there is a manpower difference, and losses are going to be hitting the southern troops hard. We talk about the makeup of black regiments during the war, and hopefully have a better idea of their performance and motivations. We also talked about the regiments that were in Oklahoma and gave a rundown of dress and supply in that region. I think it is important to touch on both of these as they were often less covered in the main histories. Next week, we're going to jump back into the world of guerrillas. Most importantly, we will discuss probably the most famous action involving irregular troops, the Lawrence, Kansas Raid. And whatever conception you have of the Lawrence, Kansas Raid, 
over the Lawrence Massacre. There is a good amount of evidence that maybe that is a little bit different. And obviously, we're going to spend some time talking about it next week. So just stay tuned to have that perception be a little bit changed than probably what you have learned in the past. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website, as well as Patreon and Venmo information. Support for the general upkeep of the show is greatly appreciated. Feedback is always welcome. Questions, comments, concerns. The email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening, and have a great week.